Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. I'm your host, Rebecca Lavoie. On today's episode, we take a closer look at Monsters Inside, the 24 faces of Billy Milligan. It still bugs me when they call me Billy, but I don't say much. I don't say anything, really. I'm not Billy. Today, we're talking to Kathy Preston, a veteran teacher and the sister of the series subject, Billy Milligan. In the 1970s, police at Ohio State arrested a man for a string of campus rapes. When examined by a doctor, it was determined that Billy Milligan had what was called multiple personality disorder. His personas were of different ages, genders, and temperaments. Milligan's case fascinated the public, law enforcement, and medical experts alike. Some saw him as a psychological curiosity worthy of further study. Others thought he was a fake looking to con his way out of prison time. Is it a hoax? Has he been faking it? He should have an Academy Award. For what? For the performance he's put on. I don't believe he's a con. He should not be out. He is a menace to women. He should be in prison where rapists belong. A lot of people did see Billy Milligan as a monster. And he probably did have monsters inside of him. Kathy, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you, Rebecca, for having me. I should say, this is the first time I've only talked to a participant in a documentary instead of talking to a filmmaker, a director, or producer. Is it strange for you to be representing a Netflix film here as somebody who not only was in the film, but is also so closely related to the story? No, I don't feel strange. Um, I'm okay talking about this, and I'm actually, at this point in my life, very open about the situation. Yeah, we, we do know you from the film as Billy Milligan's sister, and I'm sure you spend a lot of your life, you know, being referred to that way. But I would love to know more about you. Um, and would you be comfortable sharing more about who you are with our listeners? I'm a teacher and have been a teacher for 30 years. I teach in um, a middle school where I work with gifted students in English and humanities. I have a family. I stayed in the Columbus area and the Dublin area um, over these many years. Uh, I've raised three children to um, phenomenal adults, and I have three grandchildren. So this certainly isn't, you know, you know, the bigger part of your life, it sounds like. And I think it's easy for us to imagine when we just meet somebody through the context of a film that this is their whole life. But it sounds like it's it's not. It's it's a piece of your life and you have a very full complete and wonderful life. And, and this story is a part of it, but certainly not the whole. Well, 
this story has been so long in the making. <laughs> yes, it it was a very big part of my life, um, and I endeavored in my young life um, after Billy was in in the system, in the mental health system, to separate my life from his life to the point where I could pursue my own life and uh, my career and a family. So it was important to me uh, to really be able to separate my life from his life because his life was so incredibly um, mismanaged. Mm. And I stayed uh, in touch with him and, and part of his life all through his life um, because our relationship was very strong and very close all of his life. But um, I did recognize in my early 20s that I needed to separate myself from him. Can you talk a little bit about that closeness? Because I think that's something that comes across in the film, but it's not really you know, the focus of the film, the familial relationship. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that if you don't mind talking about it. Um, Billy and I and, and my older brother, Jim, grew up for the first part of our lives in Miami, Florida, where our parents were entertainers, as you saw in the documentary. Um, and once we got back to Ohio, things seemed relatively normal uh, as far as they do in the 60s with a, a single parent uh, trying to raise three children on her own. But my relationship with Billy was very close because we were pretty close in age, whereas my older brother was four years older than me. And um, he was the firstborn and I was the, the baby of the family, so to speak. So Billy and I's relationship was uh, closer just simply because we were closer in age. But as we seem to, when I recall us playing together as, as children, uh, we played together just like all children do um, up until the time of the marriage to Mr. Milligan and things changed radically in our lives at that point. But um, I recall playing with Billy and and having a, a wonderful relationship all the time, um, even in the stressful times, because um, it got to a point where we only had each other. And so we relied on each other and that relationship for, you know, the, the rest of our lives. Um, even though he could be very difficult sometimes and, and it was hard to understand him at times. But his children, um, watching him play and being um, younger, uh, it, it, that was what was normal to me. Mm. So seeing um, his behaviors was normal to me. I actually would love to hear about that because did you have... Later, when this diagnosis uh, was made, this dissociative identity disorder diagnosis, it was after his arrest to, uh, for sexual assault. Was that like an aha moment for you? Did pieces kind of fall into place? Were you able to put together things you had seen as a kid growing up? Um, did it all kind of fall into place? Well, yes, it did. Um, the situation growing up, being younger than he is, I wouldn't have had words for what I was observing. I wouldn't have words like you have a different personality or who are you today. I just observed what I saw. And so when he wanted to play, say for instance, with dolls and seemed to be very feminine, I just thought I had a playmate. That, and I thought it was normal. I thought it was regular. I thought he was able to be imaginative and, and come into that little bit of a girl world that that I had, although I was much more a tomboy growing up. But once they said, well, this is what 
this is. This is what a dissociative personality, once I had the vocabulary um, for the experiences um, I saw growing up and what we experienced, then then it just made total sense. Hmm. I'll tell you, I had a friend in college who had dissociative identity disorder, and I have come to believe that it is a really hard thing to wrap your mind around if you don't know somebody who, uh, or if you hadn't known somebody who has it. I And I'm wondering if you um, find yourself understanding or not understanding when people say they're skeptical about uh, DID existing. Do you understand that at all? Or do you feel like, you know, you've seen it, so you believe it, you've lived it, and you've experienced it, so of course you know, it's real for you. But do you understand when people say they're skeptical? Only a tiny minority of therapists were believers. This was not something that spread to the field at large. But that tiny minority were in a very powerful position. Oh, I certainly understand that people are skeptical because it's such a complex, well, the mind is such a complex um thing that people have. We only use bits and pieces of our minds at any given point in our adult life, and our, our mind can do phenomenal things. But I, I understand that it's very difficult to wrap your mind around the logical nature of somebody just not remembering who they are or where they've been. Um, although I grew up with understand or seeing him do that all the time, um, the average person doesn't see that all the time. So if it's it, if they understood that the person, if you know a person that closely and you see it over and over, then you come to understand he clearly doesn't have any memory of what he has said, of what he has done, that the fact that he threw his all of his art supplies away and didn't remember the very next day that he threw his art supplies away, um, so you you learn to survive in that and cover that up as well. So I understand being skeptical because it's very difficult to understand that that people can dissociate to that degree. I think one of the things, too, that can be difficult to understand is that, you know, people wonder if DID is, quote, convenient because people with a disorder are able to go through their lives, go to school, sometimes have jobs. There is a way of managing uh, with the personalities that, you know, the personalities themselves have a sort of order. I don't know if this is what it was like with your brother, um, but, you know, the personalities organize themselves and there are like hierarchies, like there's uh, somebody who is present for school and somebody who is present for cooking or somebody who is present for driving. Was that the experience that you had with Billy growing up? Was he able to you know, get through activities through that kind of organization of, I mean, of course, you didn't have the vocabulary for it at the time, but I'm wondering if that's what it was like for him and for, and for your family. I would say there was more um, disorganization oh, okay. in some of his, in, in some of his days, um, not all of his days, because he was able to get through, you, you know, the days going to school and managing a schedule changes. But there were also days when um, the trauma was so great or the stress was so great that he wasn't able to really manage. And so he would appear to be lost and he would appear to be um, 
confused and mistaken. And when somebody would confront him about it, he would naturally cover it up Mm. with what appeared to most people as um, a lie or they would just have very little um, tolerance for. You know, it was a different period of time in the 60s and 70s in in schools. Schools were structured more uh, differently than they are now. And so people just did not really understand when he would have uh, long periods of time where he could go to one class and one day make straight A's and the next day not even be able to pass a test in the same class. What is that? You know, uh, is that just a mark of laziness? And that's what some teachers thought. Mm. Um, or he's just not doing his work. He's not following through. Um, and so that's what it felt like. So there were long periods of time where he managed, uh, to get through the days. But, um, what I, what unfortunately I remember is the days that were so disorganized or when he was suicidal and utterly depressed. Mm. You know, there was a moment in the film where they talk about Um, a medical emergency that took place when Billy was a baby. When she handed him to the intern, the intern said, "Uh, I'm sorry, he's he's already dead. And she screamed at the intern, no, he's not. You have to do something. And so they took him back and and somehow he was revived. But I found myself wondering if you wondered or if anyone in the family wondered if there may have been a connection between that health emergency and his mental health issues later. Has anyone ever speculated about a potential connection there? I think my mom did. Of course, there's that conjecture that if there was, you know, that brain activity and the lack of brain activity. Yeah, we wonder because he was uh, frail for the first several months of his life. But um I don't know. I don't know if there were any further tests run on his brain as a baby back in the day in 1955. (laughs) So, yeah, it's always a thought because anytime there's that, there's possibility. Yeah. I mean, I think, though, though, it's pretty. I mean, I've always heard certainly that very often DID is the result of like a severe childhood uh, trauma and that, you know, the splitting of personalities to sort of freeze that moment and to be able to move forward and your family, I mean, you guys as kids had a, a, a tremendous amount of trauma that you experienced. You know, you had a lot of um, father figures kind of come in and out of your life, and the situation really turned when Chalmer Milligan came into your lives. There was a very violent argument about the fact that she was seen at work by him. She was talking to a black man. And he's screaming, and he gets on top of her, and he's banging her head on the tile. And we're standing in the hallway, and he looks over, and he screams at us to go to the bedroom. Did that violence uh, erupt immediately, or did it sort of happen over time? I'm only asking because I think that the development of so many personalities, I mean, I'm just curious at how that might relate to that situation and how it evolved. Yes, I think... um there was some discussion at some point, and this isn't in it, that, that Christine, the three-year-old, um, may have begun at, at our father's suicide, oh. at Johnny's suicide, because she was so young and so withdrawn, and that was an incredibly difficult time um, with um, understanding the suicide. But then we moved to Ohio, and then when she married Chalmer, Chalmer was, um, at first when they were dating— he was okay. I mean, he seemed to be 
all right. From my, my memory, I was six years old. But it was very soon after their marriage um, that he became violent because we were still living in, in the original house in Circleville. So that was only months. Well, in fact, it was December of the year. They were married in, um, can't remember exactly the date. It seemed to be the fall. And it was December of that year when I first saw him uh, beat her so severely. Mm. Um, and that's when I started seeing... Uh, more of Billy, as I recall through the past, you know, the, the time being in the closet and starting to buzz and rock and, and, and just really start to fracture. I can see that now. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't identify that then, but I sat with him in the closet and we just kind of held on to each other and, and worked through the situation. But he, he was there in body. He was not there in mind though. I've got to tell you, Kathy, it's really extraordinary talking to you, knowing that you went through this trauma as well. Also, your brother, Jim, just it, the story that he tells about, you know, being the one um, to, you know, force Chalmer out of the house. I grabbed him by his right shoulder and I put the knife right up against his neck. And he kind of stood up and he looked at me unbelieving, not knowing what was going on. And I walked him with that knife point right to his neck. I walked him straight to the back door. Do you remember that happening? I don't remember it quite like Jim remembers it. I mean, I remember the situation. Yeah. The this the reason why I don't remember that specifically is because oftentimes um Chalmer would pull the phone out of the the wall because you know we had landlines back then and um I would often escape by running out of the house to get to the neighbor's house so that I could call the police. Hmm. So I did not observe Jim with a knife because I'm likely to have been out of the house trying to get to the police um, or trying to get to the uh, a phone so that I could call the police. Not that they did much good. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm really curious, you know, I'm sure there have been many uh, opportunities, I'm making air quotes here for our listeners who can't mm -hmm. see me, presented to you to share your story. And I'm I'm sure you've turned down some. I'm just guessing. Um, what made you decide to participate in this documentary? Originally, I always wanted to wait until both mom and Billy were gone. Hmm. I didn't expect Billy to die as early as he did. <laughs> Not honestly, I didn't. We, we were kind of taken aback by the cancer. But um, I just, I really felt like the story um, of the abuse at the hands of the state um, it, it was not told. And that wasn't told because the second book was never released here in the United States, part of that. So after Billy died and I was contacted by a couple different people, it wasn't the platform that I wanted. I really I really tried. I really did reach out to the people who wanted to make the movie and and I and because I felt like the story if it was based just on um the first book wouldn't be accurate mm. plus it would be Hollywood and and I don't want it sensationalized. I needed to tell. I have a I have a deep need to explain to our audience that our mental health system is in need of drastic overhaul. It is inadequate on so many levels. It was back then and it, it, it continues to be. It's better, but the problem is 
we had a situation with him who was moved from one hospital to another hospital to another hospital where they manipulated him, where they manipulated his medications, his treatments, politicians got involved. Um, the abuse at the state, at the hands of the state mental health system is just as bad as the abuse suffered from Chalmer. Hmm. I mean, and he's under Dr. Lidner again. The, the person responsible for the Thorazine and everything that happened in Lima. He felt that his life was in danger. And so Billy, at that time, walked away from COPH hospital. Quite frankly, I hold responsible for the fact that when he walked away, anyone would have walked away from that kind of abuse. If you can escape it, you should escape it. Mm. Because it, it got to the point where he was not being helped. He was being further damaged. And it also wasn't justice for the people against whom he committed violence, right? I mean, that's what I kept thinking. It's like, you're not even in a position where you can, I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm sure you can't even comfortably say there was justice for his victims in this case because he was put in a horrible situation. He wasn't treated. And so it's like, there's no resolution here for anyone that anybody could call justice or help, Right. Right. There's always that fine line. You know, people ask me that a lot about what about his victims? Did they get justice? Well, according to the way we approach justice in our society, no, the rapist did not go to prison for the rest of his life. But also those victims did not have the opportunity uh, to to have his situation rectified. Mm. They, they, they can see and I don't know them and I never had the opportunity to speak to them, but I do understand where their positions are. Uh, so when you look at it through the lens of the legal system, no, they did not get justice. And seeing how he was treated and mistreated, I don't know how they feel about that, but most people that have any compassion think that this is just, there is insanity. Yeah. There is no tragic, this, this story is tragic and there is no happy ending to it right? on any level. Can you talk a little bit more about that book um, issue? Because that's talked about a little bit in the film um, that there was this uh, second book that, you know, that was published overseas, but that didn't make it here. Can you just explain that a little bit? After Dan Keyes wrote the first book, it ends with him being taken to Lima the first book, The Minds of Billy Milligan. Fast forward uh, several years when he finally gets to leave Ohio and go out to LA, that's when the state sued him for his treatment. It was close to a half million dollars for all of that treatment that they don't have a bill for. Um, he, he ended up having to declare bankruptcy because he didn't have that kind of money. It took me five years to get it out of the bankruptcy court so that it goes directly to the state of Ohio. He is still paying on that bill from the grave. He still owes $300,000. I have never heard of a state charging for the treatment of what essentially is of an incarcerated person. What is the justification for the state sending a bill for that? Have you ever heard of anything like that before or, or since? No, I haven't. And that's a great point that you bring up, Rebecca, because when he was first incarcerated in the state mental health system, he was on Social Security disability. 
So they were taking his social security checks for his treatment. And that's all you could really do because he was indigent and he was on disability. And how was he supposed to make money? Well, of course, even if he sold a hundred dollar painting or whatever, you know, he couldn't keep the money. But, and this is before the law here in Ohio changed, once he signed the book deal, the politician said, well, if he's going to make money, we're going to take it. Right. But they didn't take it right away because they really couldn't do that because then they grandfathered the law and because that had already been done. Now, two, this, the, the whole reason I said that this was okay when he was first incarcerated and they decided to make the book is, and this was not mentioned or left in the documentary is because they said he will have enough money to be able to go back to Harding Hospital, which is a private hospital here in Columbus. And that is the best time he has ever been treated hmm. for his mental illness. But that's not what happened. They took him off to Lima and then everything just went off the rails. Yeah. No, I've never heard of somebody being charged in retrospect for his treatment yeah. because it was after his treatment, after he was released, that we got this this situation, this that he was sued for the treatment. I'm curious, what was it like seeing a video of your brother as a young man in this documentary? I mean, it's one thing to look at photos, right? But there's a lot of footage here. Uh, was that difficult for you? Was it nostalgic for you? You're right. It was it, it was both. Um, when I watch him in the therapy sessions and I see him talk, it, it looks all, <laughs> I hate to say this, but it looks all very normal to me. Mm. I can't hear him now. Well, I can hear him. I know that there. Is that is that the people that that lady told me it was inside? What are they doing in there? But what I really enjoy seeing about it is like when he was on the uh, um, farm and when he was in Athens and he was running the dog Caesar and um, those are are very good pictures. Very that I really like that footage because he looked so happy. He looked. Um, he looked like he was really working hard at getting his life together, and he seemed he seemed more like my brother than 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 this mentally ill person. It did strike me how much time in his adult life he was able to spend out. You know, he, obviously there were the times he walked away and he was aided by a couple of people, including your brother. Um, yes. I'm curious, but by the way, how did you feel about that? Do you mind sharing that? Oh, I don't mind at all. Um, when he left and he ended up in the Northwest area, I knew it wouldn't go well, <laughs> knowing, knowing Billy and knowing how um, difficult Billy can be. And I, although Jim and Billy had a, a, a relationship, they were fairly estranged for some years. And I felt like Jim really didn't know maybe what he was getting into, mm. but he, he did have a heart's desire to help him. But um, it was very easy for me to say, you do understand that you are aiding and abetting a felon. And do you understand the ramifications that could happen? <laughs> um, and it's, don't worry, we're going to, we're going to work things out. Uh, okay. All right. It was, it wasn't very long before things went south pretty quickly. And, um, and we know, uh, what, what possibly happened. And I, I feel, I mean, that was really the last time, uh, Billy, and Jim had much of a conversation. So they really hadn't talked since much of the mid-80s when that happened. Yeah. 
and and it really caused a significant rift uh, in their relationship. But I felt that, uh, all right, Jim, you want to give this a go? Um, half at it. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I did because I thought, you know, I was tired. I was moving on with my life and, and um, I, I'm very involved with his life. But if he's going to leave and he's going to make a, a decision like that, and I understand the decision, that's the problem. So you have really mixed emotions about it. But you know that that can't last forever. Right. And I knew it wouldn't last forever. It was, it was a good place where it came from with you know, you could see <laughs> the many, you were like, you feel like Cassandra, right? It's like, I can see the many ways this could go wrong. Um, and, and in fact, it will. Yeah, go yeah. Wrong. It, and it did. And, and, you know, and you alluded to it, you know, there are, uh, there are two potential murders that are connected to your brother, allegedly. Um, do you have a sense? I mean, do you have an opinion as to whether or not he committed those crimes? Naturally, in my heart, I would like to believe <laughs> one way, but also in my heart and gut, I, I know of his potential. Mm. I know what his, uh, I know what his capabilities are and where when, when he gets pushed back into a situation where he's going to go into survival mode. Um, as an adult, I see and understand many facets to the fact that he is likely to have murdered uh, Michael Madden. Mm. But we were really, uh, did not have sufficient evidence nor sufficient answers to those elements that I would have to prove uh, to actually bring a case. They don't have a body. You, 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 can, you can assume it's a good circumstantial case, but, but they didn't have enough. I wasn't always entirely sure about Dewan Cox because one, I was much younger. Two, the do uh, Dr. Wilbur, Dr. Call said, this doesn't seem like his method. He's never done anything like this before. And he gave Kathy a, a large amount of money. I have no idea how much it was, but it was a substantial amount of money. When, when I heard about this young man being murdered or not being, disappearing, it kind of made me wonder if maybe that's where he got the money. In the uh, investigation that Brees was doing, there was conflicting evidence of when Dewan was actually last seen. So that was never fully um, resolved, actually. But it's possible that that he was involved in the Dewan Cox um, missing man. Mm. But he always denied it. With Michael, I felt like there's a greater possibility because um, just by the way, he actually ended up ending up in Florida and just between our brief conversations in time. I mean, this is what I was getting to before is that, you know, aside from the times he walked away, there were also times where he was deemed uh, healthy enough to be in, you know, out and to and to be, a, you know, a, a, free. Um, did you have feelings about that at the time when he was deemed, you know, healthy and uh, fit to be reintegrated? Did you think that that was a good idea? Well, I think that's the um, the goal of, of any good therapy when you have are moving a patient from inpatient to outpatient. Um, I do understand how the communities and how the politicians, I do understand people's concerns because it seemed to happen um, maybe a little faster than people thought it might. Um, I understand concerns about having uh, a, a mentally ill patient um, move from one 
of a, a, a least restrictive environment to moving into the community. But that is the that is the goal of good treatment. However, you know, however, you know, they did. Uh, at first, he was escorted by people, by by aides from the hospital, or he had to go with me and stay with me the whole time he was out. So there was a slower integration than maybe people felt, but but people still had problems with it. And clearly, the politicians in Columbus that were not directly involved with treatment or know anything about psychiatric treatment were, were making political statements more so than, than psychiatric or therapeutic statements. But when he was really well, when he was at his best and trying to integrate back into society, I felt okay about it. Mm. The thing that was missing is really the skills to exist out here in life. How was he going to get a job? Mm. What? How did they prepare him? So therapeutically, there were things missing from his therapies that that wouldn't have made this the best op best situation. Yeah. There were gaps in the therapy. Um, Kathy, there are obviously a, a lot of stories about your brother in the world. And now there is this Netflix series. I'm wondering, you know, with all of this stuff in the world, is there something about your brother that you really want people to know that maybe isn't out there or you don't think is emphasized enough in the series or in anything else that's ever been published about him? I think that um, what people don't see a lot is his very human side that um, has an, a really phenomenal sense of humor. He is so funny, so much, quick-witted, intelligent. Uh, his artwork is, is amazing, uh, was amazing <laughs> back when he was in, in the prime of his artwork and could still see Clearly, I feel like people don't see, uh, they see the rapist, they see the personalities, they see the intrigue or the phenomena. They forget that there's a, a real human being inside of this person that um, given a different time, given a different environment and a situation and a quality and, and therapeutics, he could have really been a phenomenal contributing member to society and to the art world. Uh, that's what they don't get to see in the in the movie. He would do anything for anyone if they ask him, could you help me with this? He would do it. Because what they see is the more sociopathic con man. When people say oh, he was just a con man, I say, yes, you're right. He was a con man because his personality was a con man. They, it's almost like sometimes they expect personality to be all well-behaved little good people, yeah. and they're not. They're there because they're trying to deal with the unspeakable. Well, Kathy Preston, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been talking to you. I feel like I've learned so much about your family, about your brother, and I've gotten so much insight about this story from speaking with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for giving me the chance to uh, really give you a little bit more that's missing from the, the documentary that uh, explains what went on in the rest of his life when he got back to Ohio and, and was left alone in a trailer to die. I mean, he had no reason to continue the charade, and he and I could still see evidence. My daughter could even still see evidence of his changing personalities, and and it just was something with him the rest of his life. And and quite frankly, I'm I'm very glad it's over for him. Thank you, Kathy. You're welcome. 
That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Kathy Preston. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show and stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.